today we are going to discuss the Two of Swords, the first of the three Libra cards, the Two, Three, and Four of Swords. The hermetic title of the card is Peace or Peace Restored. Do you have any thoughts on like why Peace Restored? What's it restored from? Right. Well, that's actually something Crowley mentioned about that he disagreed with peace restored because he said as a two, there is nothing for it to be restored from because it's the first emanation of the suit. But I was thinking about that and I was thinking about the fact that this Deccan is ruled by the moon and the moon is about change and fluctuation. And I wondered if the restored part was just a pause in that cycle of fluctuation. You know, peace restored from Mm -hmm. the motion, from the movement of that back and forth energy, like a temporary pause. Yeah, it could be. I think with swords generally, we have this idea that, especially with the Ace of Swords, you know, the the force of will that's associated with that can be very single-minded, Maybe, you know, um, mm-hmm. ego driven and maybe what we see in the two of swords with, with the balance between two opposing point of views or perspectives, maybe that allows peace to erupt. Or maybe we can think of it also as perhaps going up the tree. 10 yeah. To one. That's what I was saying. If you yeah. look at it in the other direction rather than as an emanation from above, but an ascent from below. Right. That could be the restoration of peace from the trauma of the sword suit in general. Yeah, (laughs) Maybe that makes sense in the sense that like, for example, with the four of swords also, we're going to see what is it called rest from strife. Mm -hmm. And that could be a rest from the five. So going upward from exactly the other thing to keep in mind, I think about the sword suit in general is that by its very nature, it's conflicted, Mm -hmm. because it's element air is the result of two opposing elements and contradictory elements, fire and water. So because its very nature comes from these two polar opposites, the whole sword is kind of has that flavor of contradictoriness. Yeah, sort of embedded within its own nature. Yeah. And the idea that the wind blows whithersoever it willeth. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever right, it is. Right, right. <laughs> I think Crowley said something that the sword's suit is more subject to change than any other because intellect by its very nature is disordered, complicated. And complicated. Yeah, and I was thinking about the concept of peace generally. I mean, this is the suit of warfare, right? So it makes sense that the idea of peace would have to be in here somewhere. But I was also thinking about the relationship with, you know, this being specifically about Libra, ruled over by Venus, who governs the matters of peace, and also the idea that peace arises from justice. So for example, and I was thinking about this in the light of like, politically, so like, um, in South Africa, in 1996, I guess it was they started the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which basically was an attempt to make people reconcile with each other after the pain and harm done to the polity by the apartheid era. And I think the idea is that like, people can't be at peace with one another unless they feel things are fair that justice has been done. And it may not be that people have to be punished. It may need to be that people do have to be punished. But more important is that they be heard out and the truth be allowed to emerge. And I think that there's something about truth underlying the peace through justice in in this card. That makes sense. Yeah, especially when you think of there's a um, association with the goddess Nemesis, Mm -hmm. you know, the the goddess who, who dealt out fairness and justice and tried to bring balance to things that were out of balance. Right. In fact, there's the term, you know, restorative justice, like peace restored, the idea that you right the wrongs that have been inflicted on people for, you know, centuries or unconsciously or, you know, systemically. So I think that there might be an idea of restorative justice in here as well. And in that idea of nemesis too. So um, astrologically, this is the moon governing the first decan of Libra. It's so interesting that you can actually see the actual moon in there. And sometimes you, I think what you were saying earlier in this, when we were talking about the concept of peace restored makes a lot of sense here, the waxing and waning and flexibility of the moon 
that uh, that this card draws on. The ability, I think, to like look at things from different points of view and to adjust as necessary. Which makes sense with the um, related major of Libra, adjustment and right. justice. Right. If you think about the scales and how they sort of tip from one side to the other until they even out, that to me is like the waxing and waning capacity of the moon. Yeah. And, you know, it, it might be interesting to sort of take a step back and think about the, um, what the story of Libra is overall, you know, from sort of two of swords to three of swords to four of swords. I mean, it's certainly about finding balance, but I think, you know, there's a narrative in there that has to do with the problem. Two of Swords, the challenge, the crossroads, the choice, and then the um, the crisis that comes from it in the Three of Swords, or whatever realization you have to make after that challenge. And then you resolve it. You have come to acceptance or a temporary compromise or something. And I think that's something we can see in the Four of Swords. But again, it's that sort of like Libra, okay, first you put a weight on one side and it goes kaplonk, and then you put a weight on the other and it goes teeter-totter, teeter-totter, and then eventually it evens right. out in, into stasis. I like Linda Goodman's book on astrology said something funny about Libras once, and she said that one of their favorite phrases is, on the other hand. <laughs> and it's very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll play devil's advocate with themselves. They often lampoon themselves as being, you know, sort of famously no, and indecisive. No matter what position you take, they're going to take the other, <laughs> even if they don't believe in it, just because, just because of that somebody needs to. Yeah, exactly. That, that balance, that, that weighing things, everything has to be counterbalanced with its argument. Right. It's funny that the Libra is also the only sign that has as its symbol something that's not human or animal. <laughs> Right. It's just the scales. Right. It's not the woman right. holding the, exactly. the scales. It's the symbol of Libra. It's is the only the one? scales, yeah. yeah. Oh, every other one is either a human or animal figure. This That's is the right. only kind of inanimate object. And it's also interesting to remember that Libra is the uh, opposite of Aries. So this idea that the Aries is all about the sort of single point of view that the comes from the, the self, other. right? Right. Whereas Libra allows us to see things from both sides, to look at ourselves in the mirror and have a conversation. What about the connection here with uh, elemental air, with the fool? Because right. there's got to be a there's story a huge, there too. There's a huge connection yeah. there. Yeah. And I think Crowley makes when we talk about you know his card a little, he makes a point to to point us towards the fool. And you can go back to episode. Uh, 11 slash 8, re-listen to the whole discussion of the fool and justice or adjustment, his dancing partner. But it's it's also just kind of interesting if you think about the three air signs, uh, Libra, Aquarius, Gemini. and Gemini. It's sort of like, you know, at Libra, we're, we're here at the crossroads of the fool's adventure. And then in Aquarius, we have to find our way. So we need like the compass or the navigating star or something to help us figure out what we're going to do. And then in Gemini, we commit to a choice, you know, with the lovers. Um, there's something about these air sign cards that have something to do with wayfinding and adventure and, you know, those qualities of the yeah, fool. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But here in the first decan of Libra, we are kind of at that sort of moment of challenge or impasse or crossroads or crisis, where suddenly it's uh, two points of view and they're not the same. <laughs> and they have equal weight, which makes sense because we're at the equinox. Yeah. Right? So the light is just as long as the dark for this point. It's uh, similar to the two of wands that way. Yeah. Um, the stars of Libra actually it's kind of interesting there there's not really much there as a matter of fact you know going back to Mesopotamian times Libra was considered part of Scorpio it was the claws of the scorpion oh no kidding and yeah only it wasn't only until you know Greek or Roman times that Libra itself became its own kind of separated off yeah. constellation but I, I love um the names of the two claws. They're actually the northern claw and the southern claw. <laughs> For real? <laughs> oh, yeah, of the scorpion. 
Uh-huh. Um, but in Arabic, they're really fun to say, uh, Zubin el Janubi and Zubinesh Shamali. <laughs> Just fun. You want to, you want to cool. name like a, a, a pair of cats. A pair of cats. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, they were said to be the, the pans of the scales when it became Libra. And what they did is weigh the length of day and night at the equinox. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Right. This is the moment where neither one can win. It's interesting, too, because the Two of Swords as being, you know, the first emanation of the actual element, because the Ace kind of doesn't count in a sense. Being about thought, it makes you realize that all thought contains dualities. There can be no thought with its corresponding opposite. Right. You can't have a point of view in a vacuum. Right. Yeah. There has to be something you're contrasting it with. Yeah, and that's something I find in readings all the time, that a lot of the time when people start out reading, they get a bit confused because you're drawing a card and you're not sure what the card is saying or asking you to do. And But if you draw its opposite, you know, what you shouldn't be doing or what's going to cause you a problem, sometimes that clarifies everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So the um, associated majors here are the High Priestess for the Moon and the Justice or Adjustment card for Libra. You know, it's funny. I often think of this card, at least, you know, coming from a Rider-Waite-Smith background, as the Little Priestess, just because it sort of looks similar. It has a lot of, uh, and we'll get more into that when we actually look closely at the card. But sometimes you see, I don't know, a fundamental connection between a minor card and a major card. And this Two of Swords, Moon and Libra card really reminds me of the High Priestess and her connection with the moon. As well as Blind Justice. As well as Blind Justice, exactly. <laughs> you know, I feel the same way about like the Nine of Discs as the Little Empress, you know, with yeah. the Venuses all over her robe. Yeah. Feels the same to me, Venus and Virgo. From the High Priestess, we have the flexibility of the moon and we have the, you know, this relationship with the scales of justice. And the equal balance. Some of the other elements that kind of come to mind are the idea that the high priestess is silent, learned and silent, and that she holds her point of view. She doesn't talk, right? And sometimes when you get this card, it can kind of make you think, I should just shut up and listen, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that point at which you go within and pause to gather wisdom and reconcile these opposites and come to a decision because, you know, you can't hear yourself think if you're talking. <laughs> and I also think there's something about those two cards that, you know, really has to do with learning and knowledge and hitting the books, you know, and just being willing to recognize you don't know everything. Yeah, it's got you know? the connection with the wisdom of the high priestess as mm -hmm. well as wisdom as Hokma. Yeah, exactly. Plus the, uh, you know, a two kind of looks like an eleven. Sort of looking at things from a Rider Waite Smith point of view. Well, that's interesting. The two as 11 kind of thing, because yeah. if you think of the two as 11, it's, you know, one and one, you know, the two opposing points of view, the or, or reconciled points of view mm -hmm. or, uh, side by side. And it also brings to mind something we'll probably get into later when Crowley talks about this card. I believe he mentions, mm -hmm. where, what is the exact quote? Let me see if I can find it. I think mm. it's on this card. That, yeah. You know, maybe we'll read some of this when we get to yeah. his card. But he says, it is all one case of the general proposition that the sum of the infinite energy of the universe is zero. And that's, yeah. again, how he's pointing towards the fool. Mm -hmm. But the reason the whole two as one and one comes to mind is because mm -hmm. when I think of the zero and that, how it's in relation to this card, positive one and negative one. It's the, right. the division of a zero, the fool, into the two, these two positive and negative right. emanations of one that mm -hmm. add to zero. Yeah, so Kabbalistically, you were saying, you know, the wisdom of Chokmah, so the second Sephira. You know, when I talk about Keter, Chokmah, Bina as lights, camera, action, <laughs> we're in camera now where you gaze and see the other, um, the other's point of view. And it's Chokmah in Yetzirah, the formative world that we were talking about so much last time. So, you know, and I think that there's something very powerful 
in general about the sword suit when we're talking about as above, so below, the effect that we have on the world as persons of intention, because it's through the swords, it's through the use of our minds that we are able to project those intentions into the world. In a sense, you could think of the whole sequence from two to 10 of swords as when you're, when you're going through a meditative or magical act, first you have to clear your mind. And that's what this card reminds me of the, the emptying of the mind in order to eventually focus your intent to the point where you can concentrate it into something that will take form. That's really interesting because in this whole progression of two, three, and four, I see a lot of parallels with meditation and and especially in regard to the Buddhist processes of meditation. This card in particular seems to refer to one of those states that is sought after, which is that of equanimity, mm-hmm. um, which is basically not rejecting anything, taking in and embracing equally the pleasant and the unpleasant. It's only sensation. Right. Yes. The two the two sides, you yeah. know, pain and pleasure, uh, pleasant, unpleasant, yeah. Yeah. And, and being fine with it all. Right. I remember that from Lama's class. <laughs> You know, the, the where they try to have you hold an ice cube and think of it as not being painful, but merely as sensation, which was fine in Lama's class, but not in the labor room. It was like, <laughs> that's not just sensation. <laughs> you know, all of the even swords particularly make me think of like, well, the two, the four and the eight particularly all seem like different forms of meditation to me. And they do seem like they each have something to do with that stillness of mind, but it's a little bit different in each case. Yeah, this this card seems to be a lot about preparation for the mindful state that, like you said, the emptying of the mind, easier said than done, um, in the silence, you know, right. the attainment of silence. The whole virtue and vice thing, we might have mentioned this in another episode on a two, but the virtue is devotion. Uh-huh. And the there is no vice, interestingly enough, for either Keter or Hokmah because I guess they're that makes far sense. too exalted to have, <laughs> to have a vice. And when you think of devotion, you can think of it in a religious sense, usually, you know, devotion to your God. But I also think of it as the devotion to your true will. Hokmah being your will. You know, yeah. that that need to keep that vow with yourself and Mm -hmm. follow your will. Right. I often think of this card as having to do with the first step in an initiatory process, you know, well, yes, because of the blindfold, but also because like in every young Padawan warrior story you ever have, there's always a period where the young person has to go through a surrender of their ego as sort of like giving up of their point of view on the world in order to learn from the master. So I sometimes think of this as the karate kid card, mm-hmm. you know, wax on, wax off, because you have to like kill the mind first. And yeah. this idea of having to sit there holding a couple of swords for no apparent reason, you know, has something to do with giving up your expectations of how the world should be. This moment, you know, the, the Hakma moment between Keter and Bina really special in a way, I think, because because when you get to Bina, then that's kind of when the rubber starts hitting the road, you know, and this is that moment before when you know something is going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet, and you haven't committed to anything yet. You don't even feel the momentum yet. It's just potential energy. Yeah, I've read it described as Keter. It's like a binary thing. Keter is the zero position, the mm-hmm. off position, and Hokma is the one or the ah, uh, yeah, the switched mm-hmm. on, yeah, the on switch, yeah, yeah. This moment kind of reminds me of like <laughs> this was a ridiculous comparison, but like when you've done all of your research for making an online purchase and you have all the arguments for and against in your head and you can't commit to buy, Bina is like the clutch. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it's like you're holding everything in there 
without yet having made a decision, or when you're deeply split between two points of view generally, and they both seem perfectly valid. When I'm listening to, I don't know, like a political controversy or something, and I've heard both sides argue, they both sound right. You know, (laughs) first you hear one side, and it's completely convincing, then you hear the other side. Or if you listen to a legal proceeding, which is very much of the nature of this card, they both sound right, you know, and then, then you go through the whole process. Just a reminder that in Yetzira, we're talking about abstract forms. Um, you know, when we get to the discs, we'll be dealing with real world type stuff, but we're here in, in Yetzira, the formative world in a place where we're messing around with the blueprints. Yeah. Of how things Not should be. Not the object, be. but the, the blueprint for it. Yeah. Sort of like the rules and the guidelines and, you know, in terms of like our, the way we live, live our lives. These are the laws, the laws of physics, the laws of gravity, the laws of our government, you know, the things that kind of mostly invisibly shape the way we do things, but they're there. And when they change, then that causes tremendous effects in our real world. Yeah, that's why I think, you know, this Libra, the sign of the law is, you know, it's so yet's erratic. <laughs> yeah. What about, you know, Venus as the ruler of Libra? What do you make of that? You know, because I kind of understand Venus as the ruler of Taurus, you know, the beautiful comforts of life. But the law, you know, this is a different kind of beauty. Yeah, the beauty of harmony and harmonious relationships. Mm-hmm. So it's partnerships. Uh, yeah, partnerships and uh, the the easy communion between people. What God would you want to rule over your partnership or whether it was business, friendship, marriage, you'd probably prefer Venus to Mars. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? One is, right. one is adversarial, right. the other is more um, conciliatory and and easeful and trying to provide a pleasurable experience. The idea that everybody wins. Yeah. It's not a contest for scarce resources. And I think that there is, you know, more of an emphasis on symmetry in these cards than almost any others. Certainly you can see that in the Thoth cards. Yeah, all of them actually. Yeah. Whole equilibrium of perfection as it's referred to. Let's see, in terms of the historical and decanic imagery and interpretation, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I think the the Picatrix and the Agrippa delineations actually do speak about justice and helping the miserable and the weak against the powerful and wicked. (laughs) In the Deccan image from the Picatrix, we have a man with a lance in his right hand and in his left hand, he holds a bird hanging by its feet. That's a bizarre image, but I almost think that that's kind of like the sword and the scales. So you have a weapon in one hand, and then the mm. bird seems like, you yep. know, a voice of reason or conscience in the other. I don't know. Just kind of, and it, the fact that it's hanging reminds me of the scales. Yeah, and I think the lance is probably one of the symbols for Hokma itself. Oh, interesting. In Agrippa, you have an angry man whose hand, in whose hand is a pipe, and the form of a man reading a book. The reading a book kind of just reminds me of the high priestess, the idea that there's... An angry man in whose yeah. hand is a pipe. And the form of a man reading a book. So maybe two different right. figures. The idea of justice and, and retribution. Right. Know, like the, yeah. the idea that this is the guy who whose justice must be restored, perhaps. Right. Right. And the, the reading of the law in the book, mm-hmm. well, on the one hand, the pure uh, reason, and then on the other hand, the anger and the wanting, the wrath of retribution for righting wrongs or right. whatever. Now, the probably the most sort of apropos Deccan image isn't one of these, but in Ibn Ezra, they the Deccan image for Libra One is a man in a market with scales. So, you know, again, the em- emphasis on fairness, on everybody being satisfied. Well, that reminds me, too, when we were talking a little bit about the two stars of the that were the pans of the scales of justice, sometimes they were thought to be held by the constellation Virgo. Oh, Virgo neat. as being the goddess of justice and holding the scales. Right. So, you know, the... 
the claws of the scorpion kind of got chopped off and at some point <laughs> added to, into the figure of the virgin right. holding them. But so you could look at it that way. But uh, making Virgo still even bigger as a constellation, right. it's already vast. <laughs> and, and instead of weighing the length of day and night in the pans, I've also seen it referred to as weighing the souls, like the Egyptian. Oh, um, yeah, the goddess Mat. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh-huh. After death, deciding if the soul was going into the Elysian fields or a place of punishment. <laughs> right. <laughs> Atea is very not particularly forthcoming on this card. I think he says something like, this is a sign that's often very favorable, but it's important that the cards around it be favorable too. To a woman, it predicts presence, which will be very agreeable to you. So I don't know. That doesn't seem particularly on target. <laughs> to me, for this card, Atea sort of thought of this card as one of friendship and affection and goodwill, which, you know, are things that. that proceed out of the good qualities of Libra. I think the Golden Dawn put a lot more emphasis on the a balance of positive and negative experiences. So, you know, contradictory characteristics within the same nature, they say, strength through suffering, pleasure after pain. You know, they, they made much more of an effort to emphasize why peace needed to be restored. One other thing that's kind of maybe interesting to think about for a second, I meant to do this before, is the idea that the Queen of Swords is associated with this Deccan. And, you know, I think of the Queen of Swords as having very much, you know, in a sword's way, having both super positive and super negative qualities. And, you know, the negative sort of cut off his head (laughs) kind of thing we see associated with the Three of Swords, maybe, you know, that sort of experience of separation and having had enough. But the two of swords, I think is her ability, perhaps correlates to her ability to see both sides of things and to detect patterns, you know, intellectual patterns. To be unbiased. Yeah, to be a fair judge. And I really associate that much more with her than even the king of swords, really. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. I mean, if you wanted someone to be judging your case, you'd choose her. (laughs) Cool head. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, All right. Are we ready to go card by card, you think? Sure. Yeah, let's do that. All right. So Two of Swords in Rider-Waite-Smith. I really love this card, and I get it a lot, too. So we have the famous hoodwinked figure. I think it's, isn't it uh, Waite who specifically describes the blindfold as a hoodwink? I don't know. Maybe he does. Uh, Let me just see if I got that written down. I haven't heard that one. Yeah. So, yeah, he says... A hoodwinked female figure balances two swords upon her shoulders. Weird choice of words. Well, yes. So, because normally we think of hoodwinked as someone who's had the wool pulled over their eyes right. as being fooled in some way. Right. But a hoodwink is more literally, um, it's sort of like a formal name for a covering for the eyes of a blindfold, but the wink part refers to the eyes. It's specifically used in Masonic ritual. The blindfold in general is, is of course, a reference to blind justice and themis. But in Masonic ritual, you know, they blindfold the initiate. And then when the blindfold's taken off, that is like, that's meant to suggest spiritual illumination, right? The Oh, I see the light. Or the on-off switch. The on-off switch, exactly. And actually, if a son of a mason is initiated, they use like a translucent one, (laughs) because he's already halfway there. (laughs) Interesting. What about the moon? I guess it's just, you know, it's a waxing crescent, right? In the Northern Hemisphere anyway. Because in the Southern Hemisphere, it's the other way around. This would be a waning crescent. Well, waxing makes sense for it too, mm-hmm. you know, as that early phase of something. Yeah. I mean, if you had to split up the moon's phases, you know, zero, uh, one through 10 instead of, you know, the normal eight, it would look maybe sort of like this on the second one. Now, I know the moon in this case is the moon of the high priestess as opposed to the moon card right. of Pisces. But there is something about the moon in general as a lunar night thing, you know, with its association with sleep mm-hmm. and the subconscious that, you know, her eyes are closed just as they are when you're, you know, sleeping. Or in a trance. Or trance going within. Mm -hmm. Isn't it interesting that 
And maybe this is why I associate the two, four, and eight with meditation, because all three of those have people with their eyes closed in Rider Waite Smith, right? You know, two blindfolds. Right. And, uh, and one person with their eyes just closed lying there. Yeah. And it's almost like in order for a sword card to achieve a moment of quiet, the eyes have to be closed. <laughs> yeah. Cause the mind's too easily distracted. Exactly. <laughs> so easily. Exactly. And actually, you know, think about it. The Ten of Swords in Rider-Waite-Smith, his eyes are probably closed too. (laughs) Yeah, you'd think. You'd think. The Six, we don't get to see, you know, what they're looking at. I think it's interesting, the rocks in the water. I mean, first of all, the waters, waters of the unconscious. But I think the rocks are interesting because they are suggestive to me of danger. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. The idea that there are two different points of view and that can lead to, you know, real, right. real trouble. You could crash on either one of them. Exactly. Exactly. And the idea also that, you know, one thing that people sometimes point out is that, you know, those tips go all the way to the edge. Right. They touch the right. edge of the page. Right. What strikes me is that they look incredibly heavy. Yeah. And the act of having to hold them that still must create a huge amount of tension. It's not as peaceful as it looks. Yes, she looks very still and is holding, Mm -hmm. and is holding them so steadily, but that's got to take a lot of uh, effort and there's probably some real residual tension there. (laughs) And there's no way she's asleep. (laughs) Yeah, right. If she's doing that. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, one thing that is really interesting, if you compare the two of swords to the high priestess and justice cards, the associated majors, you know, in those two majors, there's a veil in each of them, right? So there's a, Mm -hmm. you know, a curtain behind the justice figure, a veil behind the high priestess figure. And to me, the figure in the two of swords has a relationship to those veils, because she's sitting on a stage, you know, so curtains, stages, all have something to do with having to act out a function, having to perform a role. To me, this sort of like her being on a stage has a formality about it, like, okay, this is not what I'm naturally feeling, but I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going through this stage where I am officially considering both point of views, or I'm going through a stage where I'm I'm officially undergoing initiation. I'm doing something that is not intrinsically part of who I know to be myself in order to make room for something new. I also see the blindfold itself as being symbolic of the veil, in which case she's behind the veil or within yeah. the veil rather than, you know, in front of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the high priestess card, you know, the scene behind the veil and the high priestess card, she could be there. Right. Yeah, that could be the very pla- the very place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I've always wondered why in Rider Waite Smith in the justice figure, you know, they've got the sword and the scales, but never included a blindfold. You know, it was never a blind justice type thing. And I always wondered about that choice. And both uh, justice and the high priestess are seated between two pillars. Yes. Maybe the two pillars are always opposing in the high priestess, one light, one dark. And in justice, they're equal. They're both gray. Right. It's sort of like both of you are, you know, are going to be taken at the same value until yeah. we get this thing sorted out. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. Which I really like about that. Yeah. And gray being a color of wisdom in general. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. Of Hokma and of wisdom. So Waite says of this card, uh, conformity and the equipoise, which it suggests, uh, concord in the state of arms, tenderness, affection, intimacy, but, uh, the suggestion of harmony, you know, should be qualified because swords are generally not symbolic of beneficent forces. When we talk about peace with this card, it's, it's not living happily ever, forever and ever after, right? No, it's definitely a temporary state. And the idea that peace is something that has to be kept, like, right. you know, when we say a peacekeeping force or keeping the peace, it's right. something peace that has to be maintained. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it doesn't arise naturally. And I think that that's uh, maybe why, you know, Libra uh, manifests here in the sword suit, because that balance and that harmony is something that has to be constantly Eternal vigilance <laughs> is the prize of peace. So maybe that's why Justice's eyes are open. Right. Yeah. That would make sense. 
All right. Um, Thoth card? Oh, yeah. This one's interesting. I really like this card. Yeah. I think it's quite beautiful. Why it's, a blue rose? It's very much in line with the book tea description, mm. almost to the letter. Let's hear it. So let's see what it has. What it, We'll read it here. Mm-hmm. Two cross swords like the air dagger of an apprentice adeptus upon the point where the two cross is a rose of five petals emitting white rays. At the top and bottom of the card are two small daggers supporting respectively the symbols moon and Libra representing the decanate. So there's actually four swords in the card. There really are. The two crossed ones and then the two little ones, which I particularly like the way Lady Harris portrayed the symbols as bal- like yeah. balanced on the tip of the sword, like it's a little fulcr- <laughs> little fulcrum of a scale, which right. I think is cool that she did it that way. Those two swords, I looked them up because, you know, my son's a fencer, so I've seen this before, um, and sometimes they'll do some historical stuff uh, in the studio he used to be with, and those two kinds of swords are uh, called a rapier and a dagger. So the rapier and dagger is a style of fighting, actually. And um, the rapier, its characteristic is that it's very long. It's a thrusting weapon, not a cutting weapon. You know, so like you can't hit from the side like with the saber. It has an elaborate guard to protect the hand. You carry the the rapier in your right hand and the dagger in your left hand. So the dagger is the short sword or a parrying dagger. And that's to, number one, to protect yourself, you know, to parry if somebody's coming at you with your with their right hand, you know, you can, you have a chance to parry it with your left. But also, once you're engaged in close quarters combat with the other person, that parrying dagger becomes a much more effective weapon than the long one that you're holding in your other hand. So there's something about close engagement and those two little guys. So, little, yeah. yeah. And, and just like the idea that you have to have two swords and that you are prepared to get right up and close and personal with your opponent and engage with their point of view as if it were your own and defend yourself. So there's, there's something really interesting about that particular style of fighting because it, allows people to get closer than they normally do in, you know, regular fencing with any of the three normal weapons of fencing. It's like a really close argument. <laughs> um, but the rose. Yeah, the rose. Yeah. You asked why why blue. Well, mm-hmm. my theory on that, the color blue fits in many ways. Mm. I mean, it's one of the colors of Libra. Mm-hmm. It's one of the colors of Hokma, it's one of the colors of the moon. I mean, blue, blue, and blue. Yeah, know? and if you put those Thoth cards or your cards together, you can really see a predominance of blue across Yeah, every element of the them. card has has blue. So, uh, And blue, you know, we do associate blue with a peaceful, restful feeling. Yeah. And the, the rose is indeed, as in the description, emitting white rays. So... And the other thing that's interesting, we'll see as we go through what happens to the rose in mm-hmm. other cards. Right. But, um, <laughs> uh, in this case, even though the swords seem to be going right through the center of it, they don't seem to be harming it. It's almost as if the swords right. are kind of holding it in place or, mm-hmm. or holding it together somehow. Yeah. And yet these white rays that are emitted from it, are kind of projecting these really cool, like, uh, propeller or pinwheel type things, which to me suggests that even though there's some kind of stillness or standstill inherent in it, that swords themselves are active and whirling and the mind is always moving, mm-hmm. that idea of, the, you know, air, the movement of air, and it's never totally still. Right. It, there might be the calm before the storm, You know, type of thing, but the air is always moving. Right. And aren't those pinwheel type formations on pretty much every swords card? Pretty much, yeah. In some some form or another. Yeah. You know, in different forms, yes. Yeah. Sometimes the, the, the geometric shapes that form the pinwheel might be you know, scattered or chaotic, more chaotic. In this case, they're very balanced, geometric, perfect, precise forms. Yeah. They have eight uh, points to them, which is also interesting in terms of the idea of the mind. Right. And hoed as eight. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. 
That's true. Yeah, it reminds you a bit of a, you know, a compass or a wind vane. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the swords, um, mm-hmm. the swords themselves, the the hilts, you see the little praying angels. Yes, and, uh, yes. I think it's supposed to be a dove, although it's hard to make out. Oh, wait, where's there a dove? I oh, you mean on the uh, yes. center yeah, of the... Yeah, the center. You can, you can kind of faintly oh, see a bird-like thing, which is supposed to be a dove. Oh, yeah. Again, Venus, the mm-hmm. dove, ruler of Venus, ruler of Libra. I um, never noticed the dove before. Little praying angels. So the angels, that's interesting to me. I think, you know, angels are something of a theme in, in swords. I think that maybe because of the, you know, winged thought, the idea that. I also think it's really interesting that the angels, one of them is like upright and the other one is upside down. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's angels and demons. (laughs) Yeah. Or or just opposing points of view, the yin and yang, the black and the white, the polarity, you know? Right. And sometimes we see an angel face stand in for Aquarius, Mm -hmm. you know, which is a really airy thing. Um, And don't we sometimes see... Yeah, there's an angel face on the Queen of Swords as well, I believe, uh, over her head. She's got the mask that she's... Oh, that's supposed to be a child, Oh, I is think. that a child head? Yeah. Okay, so, but to me, they're, that's similar. You know, there's this idea of the the angel or the child could represent, you know, the the thought itself, not the not the completed action, not the completed thing. You know, the unformed or the, you know, because the angels are... You know, we think of angels as not being of this realm. Right. I was thinking kind of like the exaltedness of the two, you know, the Hokmah as being the zodiac, the heaven realm, you know. And there's probably, who knows, there may have been uh, some reference in there to the elaborate hierarchy of angels and ceremonial magic. Who knows? Right. But I think that there's, in general, in this suit, an emphasis on... You know, on heads, <laughs> because that's where this all is taking place. Right. The the house of thought. Crowley, um, in Book of Thoth, you know, you look at the section on the Two of Swords, read that, yeah. well and good enough. But what I find more interesting is that section where he compares the four twos to each other. Mm. He writes a considerable amount there, more so than any of the other twos, and what he has to say is really, wow, it's quite a series <laughs> of wormholes and interesting and funny in place. It's like, yeah, we kind of, it's, it's short enough that we can read it. And yeah. then, well, we can't go into all the wormholes. We can maybe go into a f- little bit, and but that could be um, something that people could follow up on. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is what he has to say in that section. It may be helpful to study the essay on silence page 120, for a parallel, the negative form of the positive idea. See also the essay on chastity, Little Essays Towards Truth, which concludes, Sir Knights, be vigilant. Watch by your arms and renew your oath, for that day is of sinister augury and deadly charged with danger, which ye fill not to overflowing with gay deeds and bold of masterful of manful chastity. (laughs) Witness also catalyst. Domi manius paresque nobis novum continuus futuationes. <laughs> Do you know what that translates I don't to? Know. It's NSFW. Oh my god! Uh, it's it's a it's a line of poetry that translates something like uh, "Stay home and prepare yourself for nine continuous bonkings." <laughs> And then it goes on to say, nor does he misunderstand the gesture of Harpocrates. Silence and chastity are isomers. It is all one case of the general proposition that the sum of the infinite energy of the universe is zero. Well, this is where it gets really interesting. So, okay, the essay on silence is also from that little essays towards truth, but it's included here Mm -hmm. in in Book of Thoth on the page that Mm -hmm. he points towards. And that is really interesting. And I think one of almost one of the most important passages in the entire book to really understand. When he says here, the negative form of the positive idea, he's talking about Harpocrates, the god of silence, as the opposite form or parallel form to Horus, the Mm -hmm. active form. Mm -hmm. 
And he talks a lot about the power of silence and the misunderstandings about what silence really is. But then he points us towards this little essay towards truth on chastity. That is even more interesting because what he says there, he says a lot there, but he says that chastity is misunderstood. A chaste man is not merely one who avoids the contagion of impure thoughts, but one whose virility is competent to restore the perfection of the world around him. Chastity is not cowardice of moral attitude, emasculation of the soul, or stagnation of action. And he says, beware of abstinence from action. And, you know, when he talks in in that passage we just read about the knight errant, he's saying that part of chastity is exploring everything so that you're not tempted by it. Mm, You know what I mean? Yeah shunning everything and having it be forbidden fruit, Mm -hmm. but tasting of everything and and taking in these adventures, nor by being distracted by them and led astray by them. The power of chastity is the power that you've experienced everything and you are neither led too far towards it, but nor do you push it away. And it's, it's a really valuable essay to read and take in. And I found it Super interesting. So, um, and you don't need to own the book, Little Essays on Truth. It's easily found on the internet. So I mm-hmm. highly suggest you, uh, look it up and look up that chapter on chastity for something really interesting. Now there's a footnote in that chapter that I thought was interesting too. So where the footnote is, it just says, chastity, castus, possibly connected with castrum, a fortified camp may be supposed to assert the moral attitude of readiness to resist any assault upon an existing state of purity. But anyway, when you go down and read that footnote, it says the root cas means house, and house is Beth, the letter of Mercury, the magus Mm. of the tarot. He is not still in a place of repose, but the quintessence of all motion. He is the logos and he is phallic. This doctrine (laughs) is of utmost Kabbalistic importance. But I think that's pointing towards, in the other part, he specifically says silence and chastity are isomers. And what he means by that, you know, an isomer in chemistry is something that has the same number of atoms or elements, mm-hmm. you know, but it's arranged in a different way. Mm-hmm. So he's saying they're, you know, aspects of the same thing. He says that chastity is a positive passion, a strict observance of the magical oath to pursue your true will. Right. And he says that it's cardinal to the gate of wisdom. Uh, and he talks about the difference between chastity and purity, how silence is so important to that. So if you read those two essays, one after the other, and take it all in, there's a lot to be learned there, and it's really applicable to this card. Besides seeing silence and chastity as kind of implied as equal in the high priestess, there's the tradition of the chaste knight, right? Right. Out of chivalry, the idea that the um, the sexuality that he's not expressing in conventional ways is equivalent to spiritual force. In some way, yeah, he, that he actually mentions the the, the knight errant in, in his little essay here. He says the Sphinx is not to be mastered by holding aloof, and the brutish innocence of paradise is always at the mercy of the serpent. It is his wisdom that should guard our ways. We need his sw- swiftness, subtlety, and his royal prerogative of dealing death. <laughs> The innocence of the adept, we are at once reminded of the strong innocence of Harpocrates and of his energy of silence. A chaste man is not one merely who avoids the contagion of impure thoughts and their results, but whose virility is competent to restore perfection to the world about him. Thus the Parsifal, who flees from Kundry and her attendant flower witches, loses his way and must wander long years in the desert. He is not truly chaste until he is able to redeem her, an act which he performs by the reunion of the lance and the sangria. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's how. Of course he does. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. You know, one of the routes to gnosis is, you know, excitatory gnosis, which is essentially the spiritual orgasm. Sexuality itself is a sacred capacity. So not using it doesn't make you more holy. Right. He says here, as the function of the castrum or castellum is not merely to resist a siege, but to compel to obedience of law and order every pagan within range of its riders, so also it is the way of chastity to 
do more than defend its purity against assault. So I found all that very interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's something else that Crowley says that I wanted to get your opinion about because I wasn't quite sure what he was getting at. Um, when he says that the rose represents the influence of the mother whose harmonizing influence compounds the latent antagonism native to the suit. Now, the mother, you know, that could be Bina, it could be Venus. Yeah, I would know. guess in this case, it would be a reference to Venus. Also yeah. the priestess, you know, as yeah. a form of the mother. I guess so. I don't tend to think of the priestess, priestess as a mother as a more mother. as a virgin. but Yeah, or the rose either. You know, I think of that more as an empress. Right. So that's country. more Venus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose only as the influence of Venus as the ruler of Libra. But what does he mean that it compounds? Read it the, again. Yeah. So uh, this rose represents the influence of the mother whose harmonizing influence compounds the latent antagonism native to the suit. I mean, when you say that something is compounded, you think that it's increased it, mm. you know? Yeah, that is interesting. It's just a weird, there must be some other sense that he has in mind. Or, you know, creates a compound, creates a combination, you know, bonds with the antagonism of the suit to create something that's does more stable. Does he capitalize the M in mother or not? Yeah, he does. Mm. And that's weird to me, too. Because that's, when he does that, I think of Bina. But, right. you know. Yeah, I'll have to ponder that one. Shall we uh, move on to your card? To Tabula Mundi, Two of Swords? Yep. Uh, yeah, so we, continuing the, the theme, we have a definite symmetrical composition of two crossed swords. In this case, the swords are kind of performing the function of the fulcrum of the scales. So from the adjustment card, the same scales that are in that card are seen as hanging from the points of each sword. Also from the other card that's associated with this, the, the priestess card, we have the, the two pillars, the light, lighter and the darker mm -hmm. pillars. Again, you know, as we've talked about this kind of um, duality that happens. One marked with the moon, one marked with the sun. Yeah. One marked with the upward dark triangle and the downward light triangle. And we've mm -hmm. got the moon itself divided in half into half of it being dark and half of it being light. Mm -hmm. So it's all different ways of saying similar things. Mm -hmm. um, also from the priestess card is the rolled scroll. And I mention a little bit in book M about how the Masonic altar has on it all the holy books, you know, the Bible, the Quran, mm -hmm. everyone that they have, they put up on the altar. And it's about acceptance of all doctrines is the path to peace. Just right. like accepting the positive and the negative, having equanimity, balancing these opposing forces. It's all part of how the mind gets peaceful is accepting it all as equal and true. Yeah. And I think there's something always with the high priestess's scroll or her book or whatever it is about the search for esoteric knowledge, the humility that comes with seeking out secrets, because you're so aware always that you don't know the whole picture. Right. And then you have two uh, ace of swords swords there. Yep. The feather and heart jar from on the pans of the scales, you know, being part of ma'at as justice and weighing of truth. And we think of the swords as being pure reason and the mind. But this decan's ruled by the moon. And the moon is often has to do with the emotions and the emotional component. So these divisions, these often trigger emotional responses. And the, the key is not to let them if you want your right. mind at peace. <laughs> right. I think that it's worth talking more about the various goddesses of justice that are associated with the card. So there's Ma'at, whose job is the weighing of the heart against the feather, right? Yeah. And the, the heart needs to be, you know, equal or lighter than the feather for the person to ascend. You know, so there's this, this moment of reckoning in everyone's life, which I think is also, you know, um, the function of nemesis, as you were saying before, the goddess who 
corrects and disciplines those who have trespassed against the gods, specifically, as opposed to other humans. But you know, what's also curious is that Austin Coppock says that uh, there is an association with this Deccan and the Furies, the Arrhenias. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah, more exactors of justice. Justice, right. Exactly. They're so interesting as figures. I went down a little bit of a Furies wormhole last night. And so you know how Uranus, Uranus, was castrated by his son Kronos, right? His blood created the Arrhenius. And of course, his, you know, junk in the ocean created Aphrodite, <laughs> Aphrodite who is the ruler of the sign of this Deccan. So, you know, which is kind of interesting. But uh, the three Arrhenius are Electo, Megaira and Tisiphone. So Electo is the one who's in charge of retribution for the sin of anger. Megaira is the one who is in charge of retribution for the sin of jealousy. And Tisiphone is the one who is associated with the um, family crimes, killing your parents, killing your kids, killing your siblings, whatever it is. Kinslayer. Kinslayer, exactly. And so the Oresteia, where Orestes is pursued by the Furies for murdering his mother Clytemnestra for being in bed with his uncle Aegisthus after the Trojan War when his dad comes home and is supposed to be greeted like a conquering hero. He was, Orestes was pursuing justice by killing his mother Clytemnestra, but her ghost immediately activated the Irenaeus and pursued him. Orestes was under the protection of Apollo, so he you know, at the end of this furious flight from the Irenaeus, he uh, takes refuge in the temple of Apollo, you know, clutching <laughs> the altar. And uh, and the Pythia, the oracle of Apollo, is shocked to find him there. Problem, right? Here's the crisis. And it's resolved by Athena arriving, another figure of yeah. justice, the yep. sword, female goddess, in the judgment of the gods, Orestes was considered, you know, half of them thought he was guilty, half of them thought he was innocent. Again, the weighing of the scales. And Athena persuaded the Furies to lay off by giving them a deal. She basically said, okay, so you will leave him be. I cast the deciding vote, but from now on, you will be known as the humanities, the blessed ones. <laughs> so they would be given some respect and some honor. You got a and, new title. Yeah, new title. That's justice. Nobody's quite happy, but an intervening goddess creates the peace, you know, through her actions. So we've got Ma'at, we've got Nemesis, we've got the Furies, we've got Athena, and then in, in a way, I think, you know, through the high priestess and through the esoteric knowledge associated with this card, maybe we have Isis as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the light and the dark. Isis yeah. and Neptis. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot sort of hiding in this card. Well, what about your Ouroboros there? Oh, on the, the scales of the... Mm-hmm. Pans of the scales, I should say. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, that comes from the adjustment card, and it's always kind of a way of talking about cycles and things that happen in cycles mm-hmm. and fluctuations that go around and around and around. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, you know, why ever waste a chance to put a serpent in a card? How exactly. many do you have in the deck? <laughs> you did a count once, like hundreds, right? It was over a hundred, I'll just say. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You've got serpents on the handles of, of the swords, serpents of uh, with their um, originally six coils, and or, then or Boros's mm-hmm. too are always kind of like symbolic of eternity as well. Yeah, and there is something about the eternal in this card. I think. Yeah, the idea that the actions that you take they have an impact beyond the scope of your own reckoning. Right, even though. It appears still nothing ever stops. It keeps on going eternally, that idea of motion. Mm-hmm. I, I really like what Crowley said in his essay, beware of abstinence from action. Because yeah. there's this sense in this card that you're pausing and that you're very still, but it doesn't mean you're not supposed to take action. You're gonna, You're supposed to take this card as an opportunity to get clear on what your next action should right. be. Got to do it sometime. All right. Is it something that you get a lot, this card? Mm, get it often enough. Um, mm-hmm. Not a whole lot, but I do, yeah. You know, when I see this card, 
often it's about weighing the pros and the cons and taking some time of stillness in preparation for making a decision. That there is a set time of stillness and it's okay. Take advantage of it because action will be required at some point. Yeah, I remember I was in cooking school and I did a reading for one of my fellow students who was a real skeptic, one of those who are really fun to read for. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I didn't, I wasn't the best reader at that time. I was, this is like 20 years ago, but I drew this card for him and I said, oh, well, you're, you know, you're at a crossroads, you're about to make a choice. And he, he had such a struggle with himself at that point because he didn't want to believe me. But on the other hand, he was having this issue. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, you know, how many, how many cards say in that. this deck say that? Oh, you know, and he's really super skeptical. Nevertheless, it was exactly what he needed at the time, like it or not. I tend to get this card. Well, I get it a lot. I've gotten it. It looks like many times when I had to be quiet. You know, either because I was doing quiet things and that's just how it was or because I needed to hold my tongue, you know, because I was in a situation where things could have exploded or gotten, you know, mm. worse. Um, there's the silence and chastity. Oh, here's one where I fell asleep after a massive Christmas dinner prep. <laughs> but, uh, you know, because I'm not a person who falls asleep during the day. But this is a card where occasionally I will have a a weird experience, an out-of-the-ordinary experience with unconsciousness. And the strangest ever experience that I had with unconsciousness took place when I had this card. So remember the time I told you that, so this is my one like super psychic incident where our friend Spiffo had lost his keys and I was asleep because, you know, on the other side of the planet, we're 12 hours apart. And I dreamed that he said, I lost my keys you know, like in a chat. So I woke up the next morning and I said, oh, I had this funny dream where you told me you lost your keys. And he said, I did lose my keys. And I'm like, very funny, you know, <laughs> that's hilarious. It turns out he had. And this is like something that never happens to him because he's a cancer and he knows where all his stuff is. And this was like something that really puzzled me for a long time. But all I can conclude was that, you know, for whatever reason that night, I happened to be a clear enough channel that you know, his agitation over losing yep. his cheese some, keys somehow, somehow got through. through yep. Somehow got through. And, you know, and to me, that was like, it was such a little incident, but it was so unlike anything that has ever happened to me before in terms of like the weirdness of life and, you know, the strangeness of psychic connections that there really is no other explanation, right? You know? Yeah. So I, mean, I get stuff like that all the time. Yeah. So I mean, I'm other people a, get it all the time. Not so. A <laughs> My psychic phenomena seems to be, huh, this is so weird, related to the male. <laughs> really? Serious, so you always know what's coming? No, I, yeah. it's not that I always know what's coming. Even if it's something that like is totally unexpected that you shouldn't be expecting, yeah, I might be driving down the street and go, "Hey," and it'll pop into my head, and I'll get home, and that will it'll be in the mailbox, and there'd be no, yeah, it's not that I like something I was expecting to come in the mail or something, but it's happened to me so many times in my life. I know what's in my mailbox. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's something about that. The power of the moon, Yasod, to sort of represent everything that's connected. The astral, yeah. The astral realm, everything that's connected, That so that if occasionally you're going to get a poke on the shoulder, you know, and yep. it's it's unusual, but it's not unexpected. All right. No, oh, we should, we kind of mentioned them already, but we should uh, mention the colors. Oh, yeah. Sorry so about that. the color of the card is blue, pearl, gray. That's mm -hmm. the, the main color. And then we have the colors of the two related majors. So for Libra, we have the greens and blues, emerald and blue, and deep blue, green, and pale green. Mm. And for the moon, we have all the blues and silvers, blue, silver, cold, pale blue, and silver rayed sky blue. So mm. you can see... Those in pretty much all the cards. There's yeah. a lot of blue. Um, Crowley was heavy on, heavy's card is heavy on the green and the green blue. Mm hmm. Greenish yellow. But he does have the blue and the gray too. And my card has the blues and greens and grays. Your card really does emanate a sense of peace about it. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about the glow of the moon that for me, when I look at it, makes me feel that sense of peace. 
kind of like when you're looking up at the night sky, whether you're looking at the moon or at the stars, it yeah. always brings me back to that sense of being present with everything. Yeah. And, you know, when I look at the scroll on your card, I don't know, it just makes me think of like how we strive through, you know, what we're studying to use our minds, use our swords, you know, to understand that sense of connection. But it'll be there <laughs> whether or not we succeed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's more universal than, yeah. than us. Yeah. We can tap into it, though. All right. Uh, shall we attempt to sum it up? Okay. Oh. <laughs> okay. So um, we talked about uh, the idea of peace and peace arising through justice or restorative justice. We talked about the nature of the sword suit as being conflicted because air is the result of the union of two contradictory elements, fire and water. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about the balance of light and darkness at the equinox and opposing but equally valid points of view. We talked a lot about knowledge and its duality and counterbalance. Mm -hmm. And the moon as correlating to the flexibility of the mind, being able to look at things different ways. We talked about acceptance of all doctrines as a path towards peace. Mm. And listening rather than talking, the virtues of silence, as well as silence and chastity and the parallels between those. Yes, Harpocrates as the Lord of Silence and also the Lord of Defense and Protection. We also talked about motion, the idea that this stillness or seeming stillness is temporary and that really the mind is always in motion. Mm -hmm. We talked about Libra as a process of challenge coming to a realization and then accepting and moving on. Mm, we talked about the wisdom of Chokmah in Yetzirah, the world of formation. We talked about Justice as being fair relationships. We talked about the mysteries of the number two. And eleven. And eleven. <laughs> we talked about assorted goddesses. Uh, we talked about Ma'at and the feather of truth. We talked about the Irinyas or Furies. Um, and the intervention of Athena on the side of justice. We talked about chastity's relationship to the magus. Magus as having a lot to do with the suit of swords. We talked about blindfolds or hoodwinks. And veils. And veils and stages. And uh, rocks and dangerous rocks in the water. We talked about angels and daggers and rapiers. And spiraling pinwheels. Okay. All right. So, uh, thank you for joining us on this exploration of the Two of Swords, this journey through many kinds of peace. And we'll be back next time. Brace yourselves for the Three of Swords. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs>